0: Hi everybody, this is Bob Gale, co-creator of Back to the Future, and you're listening to Brad Gilmore. Doc! Doc! Ah! Okay, relax, Doc. It's me. It's me. It's Martin. Oh, it can't be. just sent you back to the future. Oh, I know you did send me back to the future, but I'm back. I'm back from the future. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Uh, Are you telling me that you built a time machine? The way I see it, if you're gonna build a time machine into a car, why not do it with some style?
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back in the Future: The Podcast, the only podcast looking back in time because film trilogy of all time, Back to the Future. I'm your friend in time, Brad Gilmore, and here we are. This is a, I wouldn't say an emergency episode, but we are sitting here in the uh, studio in my home, which I've yet to name. I have names floating around. We're sitting here on November the 8th, 2022. Um, So at this time during 1955, Marty was spending some time back in Hill Valley trying to figure out how he was going to get back to the future. So congratulations. A few days ago, Doc Brown invented time travel. Right? What was it, November 5th? So that was three days ago. Doc Brown invented time travel. So that was a really cool thing. And what I wanted to do was bring you a couple cool things. Speaking of um, Doc Brown, Chris Lloyd, um, we are going to have a couple of interviews here on the show today. This is a, um, I'd say this is an unofficial kickoff for Season 10. Unofficial? Well, probably this, I don't want to get your hopes up and or down. <laughs> so I think that this might be the only episode for the rest of the year. Unless something massive happens. Um, But I wanted to come to you all because I had two really fun conversations for my show, The Collection. If you never listened to The Collection, go over there. I have new interviews all the time. Jimmy Fallon, uh, who's been on this show, of course. I use that interview. Mark Wahlberg. I I don't need to go through the list, but there's a lot of great names over there. So go check out The Collection with Brad Gilmore on your favorite podcast app. If you want to hear more of me, I drop probably three interviews a week over there. But I did a couple over the last week and I really enjoyed the conversations and they're centered around film and they have Back to the Future intertwined in them. One of them is with Eric Appel. Eric Appel is the director of Weird, the Al Yankovic story. He actually did a a uh, Willy Wonka parody trailer with Christopher Lloyd. We talk a little bit about that. We talk about how a trailer from 2010 makes it all the way to 2022 in a feature full-length film, Daniel Radcliffe, Weird Al, the genius that is Al Yankovic and more. And then we talk to Sean O'Connell. Now, if you're a movie fan, which if you're listening to this show, maybe you're more than just a Back to the Future fan, Sean O'Connell is host of the Real Blend podcast. He's the editor over there at Cinema Blend. And he just wrote a brand new book called With Great Power. It talks about the evolution of the character Spider-Man uh, through, the, through the years of his cinematic excellence and sometimes lack thereof, starting with the 1970s foreign Spider-Man films all the way up to, of course, uh, No Way Home, which was a massive moment if you were a film fan. So we're going to talk to both of those guys. And then, as a teaser here at the end of the episode, I want to throw in the first episode of Clue the Movie podcast that Jeff Smith and I are doing. You know, last season I had Jeff Smith on. We talked about that 85 trilogy, which is Fletch, Clue, and Back to the Future. And um, we, we spent a lot of time in Clue. Jeff Smith is a documentarian. He did Who Done It, the Clue documentary. ClueDoc.com is where you can find out more about him. And I thought I'd just throw that in as a little bonus so that. In case you're interested in checking it out, you can just hear the first episode right now on Back to the Future of the Podcast. And um, we can see if you want to migrate over. What we're doing with Clue the Movie Podcast is we're watching the 1985 cult classic Clue one minute at a time. So very different from this podcast where we kind of go into theories. I have guest interviews, things of that nature. Clue the Movie Podcast, we literally watch the movie a minute at a time. We stop it after 60 seconds, and then we talk about it for about 20, 30 minutes, about that one minute, and everything that happened in that one minute. Sometimes it's a a commitment. It's a big commitment. Uh, We're one episode down, or I guess now two episodes are out. Episode one and two are out on Clue the Movie podcast, and we have 95 to go. So, you know, it's a commitment. It's a commitment. We're doing it weekly. So it's about two years almost we're going to be doing this podcast. I think you're going to enjoy hearing my interviews with Eric Opel, director of Weird the Al Yankovic Story, Sean O'Connell, the author of With Great Power, and the first episode of Clue the Movie podcast with my man, Jeff the, Jeff the Smith, here on Back to the Future, the podcast. Eddie joins me right now. We're talking about Weird. The Al Yankovic story, the director joins us right now, Eric Capel. Eric, man, congratulations on the film. It's phenomenal.
2: Thank you so much. I'm glad you dug it. <laughs>
1: Let me ask you this, because it's it's finished now. People are going to see this movie. The picture is locked. Are are we happy with it fully, or do, are you like George Lucas and you wake up in the middle of the night being like, Greedo should, should shoot first?
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm going to edit in a lot, lot lot more special effects. Uh no, I'm super happy with it. I'm super happy with it. I mean, we did we th- there are jokes and stuff that we that we cut out of the movie just, you know, to preserve this weird like tone that we have going on. Um so may, I mean maybe at some point you will see uh uh, you know, the Yankovic cut. <laughs> Our version of the Snyder cut will have uh uh yeah, uh, It'll be a
1: 12-hour story.
2: That's right. I mean.
1: <laughs> <laughs> man, no, it, but it was just so much fun to watch. And I remember uh, the trailer, the original trailer when it came out, the Funny or Die trailer 2010, because um, somebody, I was in school at the time, and somebody had sent it to me, and I didn't realize it was a Funny or Die video at first. So I was like, whoa, Madonna, wait, wow. <laughs> what happened? And then, um, but to fast forward all these years later, man, I mean, did you think, like, hey, we're actually going to do this movie someday?
2: No, I never thought we were going to really turn turn it into a movie. Um you know, Al Al played this trailer at his concerts for like uh, a decade. Um people would come up to him after shows and say either is this movie real? I've looked for it and I can't find it or like can you please make it? And thankfully it like wore on him after all those years and he sent me, you know, an email in 2019 uh in february that was just like i've been thinking you know after 10 years of people asking me to see this movie for real like and all these biopics that are coming out now would you be interested in you know collaborating on it and, and writing it together and turning it into something real which i was i met up with him the next morning and we started batting <laughs> around ideas
1: so i mean did y'all keep in contact because you directed the the, the trailer the funnier die yeah yeah so, yeah. Kept so i contact? did the
2: original yeah and al um you know, he collaborated with me on that. I I had, I I had come up with the idea to do this ridiculous weird Al biopic trailer. And I reached out to him through Patton Oswalt, who I had worked with before who's in the movie just to get, just to get his blessing. Um, I, I, it felt like an idea that Al maybe would have done himself. And I want to make sure I wasn't stepping on any toes and much to my surprise, Patton wrote me back and was like, Al wants your email. And I was like, a few hours later, I was on Sunset Boulevard getting coffee with Weird Al and watching biopic trailers <laughs> on his laptop and dissecting them. And um, yeah, we like kept in touch through the years. He's um, you know he's a he's a very good friend. He you know bought my kids gifts when they were born and and uh, you know I saw him, you know if he ever played uh, a, a show in town, he would always invite me. I would always go. And uh, yeah, and 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 now we're much closer obviously we've like made a baby together <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's it's it's so insane to me that that you know i mean obviously People continue to watch the trailer, and that was probably you know what led him to finally say, "Let's do the movie." Um, but you know, for him to stay in contact with you, and did you were you just like a hellacious weird out Yankovic fan? This is where you had the idea for the biopic trailer, or was this just like a funny idea that you had? You are like, oh man, that would be that be something to try because because really the movie and the trailer, in a lot of ways, is a parody of yeah. biopics. You know, which plays into the weird out of it all.
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I um so i had been working at funnier die for a couple of years at that point i started in 2007 and i had made another fake movie trailer prior to this like the the red camera had just come out right. recently you know so it was like oh people can make things that look like real movies and i wanted to make fake movie trailers that would fool people into thinking that they were actual movies. Um, the first one that I made was called Gobstopper, and it was like a um Willy Wonka reimagined as like a saw-like horror movie. Um, with Christopher Lloyd as this like creepy Willy Wonka. I know, I see your Back to the Future poster in the background. As a fan. <laughs> um, yeah, and me too. I I wrote him a personal letter to get him to like come be in this crazy thing. And uh so after that, I was trying to figure out what. I wanted to do another fake trailer. I was trying to figure out what it would be about. That notorious um, B.I.G. biopic had just come out. And like those events had just happened 10 years prior. And I, I was reading some article about, you know, what was true and what was sort of factually inaccurate in the movie. And it just got me thinking it'd be funny to do a fake biopic trailer about someone who's still alive you could clearly fact check it and then to just make everything up. And the first name that I thought of was like, well, weird Al, cause it works on all these levels. It's meta, you know, he's the King of parodies. So, you know, to do a biopic parody, that's a biopic about the parody guy. It's just like <laughs> this weird Russian nesting doll of ideas. And, uh, and then also like I, I had seen his behind the music, and like, I knew what his real life was like. And, you know, he even makes a joke about it in that behind the music that like, you know, there's no crazy rock biopic story here. So I'm like, oh, this is the perfect subject, you know, to make it about. Yeah, man.
1: And 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 even so fast forward to this movie, though, I mean, when the trailer came out for this. At first I didn't cuz I, I didn't know that it was coming out when I make the connection of oh this is like the, exactly like the Funnier dies storyline yeah. and the line in the trailer is when he's talking to his parents and you know he's just like uh stop being who you really are I'm paraphrasing I was like yeah, wait yeah. wait what <laughs> and then you get yeah. you get the whole joke of it all but Daniel Radcliffe I feel like was such an inspired choice because you don't yeah. think of him physically as it, you're not even really thinking of Daniel Radcliffe as a comedic actor because a lot of the things he's done post Harry Potter have been dramatic roles, some off Broadway, some stage productions. Yeah. Why was, why, who came up with that idea? Why was Daniel Radcliffe <laughs> the right person?
2: Yeah. You know, Alan, I came up with a short list of actors that we were thinking about for this. Um, and Radcliffe's name just very quickly rose to the top. Um, you know, one, he's, uh, he's a fantastic dramatic actor. He carried like an entire movie franchise for a decade. Um, you know, you've experienced the world of Hogwarts through the eyes of, of Daniel Radcliffe. And it's like, he's the perfect person. Like he's just got the face for it. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, some of these, the choices that he's made post Harry Potter have been, um, you know, he's done a lot of dramatic stuff, but he's done a lot of really bonkers, you know, strange, yeah. Swiss army man playing a a corpse, you know? Um, and, uh, You know, we're like, he's going to be someone that that really gets what we're going for. With all of our cast, we really wanted actors that weren't going to try to push the comedy too hard because the comedy in our movie lives in the drama. It's, you know, it's actors playing this really absurd dialogue and this kind of these these silly scenarios um, playing them really grounded and playing at the top of their like emotional intelligence <laughs> as ridiculous as things are. It's like, we want tears in your eyes that, you know, uh, Daniel at certain points of this movie. And, you know, he kind of had the same question too. When we first, uh, when we first sat down with him, like why, I don't under why me for this. And, you know, once, once we, you know, I- I explained what we were going for, it was like, Oh, this makes perfect sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because again, I guess that's probably another trope of, going back to like uh biopics when they did the Tupac story, like the, the thing wasn't about the actor. It was like, we got to find somebody who looks like Tupac.
2: Right. 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 <laughs> and, so to go in the opposite direction. Yeah. It's like, they're usually, uh, uh, you know, uh, in Bohemian Rhapsody, the teeth, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, really going to such lengths to make this person look, uh, exactly, you know, like the subject and Dan, here's Dan. He's a, you know, a foot shorter than Al and, uh, <laughs> But he had, you know, he does have the signature weird Al abs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. When Dan took his shirt off on set, we were like, whoa, (laughs) maybe the rumors about uh, him playing Wolverine are true. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. He's getting (laughs) Uh, jacked. guys ripped.
1: (laughs) Um, You know, speaking of, uh, I guess, Freddie Mercury and Queen, my favorite scene in the movie is the another another one rides the bus moment. Yeah. Um, The pool party. The pool party. (laughs) And there's several things about it I love, but- To me, all the celebrity cameos that are in this, right, Um, uh, with great comedic actors, Jack Black, Conan O'Brien, Will Forte, you can go on, the list goes on and on. Patton Oswalt's in the movie as well. Um, I think it was really an uh, an testament to how great Weird Al is in the comedy community, how much he's respected for his craft.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, everyone was so, it's amazing. You know, all all of those, a lot of those actors kind of came from Al's personal Rolodex. I mean, it's like he shared his Christmas card list with me. And (laughs) like these are all the people that I feel comfortable reaching out to and asking. And it's like this incredible, this like murderers row of famous comedians. And we went down through the list and just kind of assigned people, see if this person will play this person, you know. It was astonishing how fast some of these responses came in. I mean, Al would like reach out to the person and 10 minutes later, I would get a text. They're in. They just need to know what date to show up. But they're 100% going to do it and are happy to. <laughs>
1: it's incredible, man. And this was your directorial debut. I mean, you've done stuff for a feature, for a feature length yes. uh, directorial yeah. debut. What did you learn in the filmmaking process having to take on a feature like this?
2: I mean, it's you know, there's there's similarities, but there's uh, the amount of control that I had over this one was, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I I enjoyed that quite a bit. More. I had all of the control. Uh, I mean, you know, with I've directed a lot of television, and um, you know, you're 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 directing someone else's thing. You're stepping in to like execute someone else's vision and you know, it's, um, the writers are right there with you on set and they're, you know, um, I don't know. It's easier, I guess to do a, much easier doing television. Um, and yeah, in the, in, in it, the, the pressure of doing a film is a lot more cause you sort of like, you know, this is you, you're putting it out there. It's gotta be good. Mm-hmm. It's gotta be good. And, um, You know, just just uh, all of the being with the project from like its inception all the way to the end. I mean, basically, the biggest thing I learned was like, I can make a movie. I can make a movie that people like, and I want to make more movies. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> those are really the things that I got.
1: <laughs> well, you know what? I think you're gonna make a ton of more movies. This this movie is incredible. It's gonna be on Roku this week, streaming. Um, Let me ask you this though, because I'm sure people have asked you throughout, you know, you promoting this movie, what's your favorite Weird Al song? You know, What's your favorite parody? What's the one though that you find that gets stuck in your head the most? Maybe not necessarily your favorite Weird Al song, but especially during the making of this movie, you're having to listen to so many of his cuts from 30 40 years of him making music, what's the one that would always get stuck in your head?
2: Yeah, I mean, the one that would always get stuck in my head on when shooting, um my bologna was like yeah, constantly in my head when we were shooting. But really for everyone it was like whatever the last song we filmed was, for the in, until we shot the next one, everyone's going around <laughs> singing that song. I, I think that in uh, uh but of in Al's entire catalog the biggest earworm for me and the song that I I always say that I love the most. And it's a real deep cut on, um, on uh, off the deep end. It's this song called the white stuff, which is a new kids on the block parody of (laughs) the right stuff. And it's about the cream inside Oreo cookies, (laughs) the white stuff. And it's like, I don't know, It's for some reason like that song is always the first song that I think of when I think of Weird Al. (laughs) Well, you know man, going back
0: to
1: like how great of a a comic uh, legend really he is, in a lot of ways, I actually put him up there with a Larry David, in in the sense of thinking of, just thinking of, oh, I could do a parody about the cream filling in the Oreo. That would be hilarious. Like I wouldn't, I could sit and look at a million Oreos and never have that idea. Um, I know. I don't know. think he... Yeah,
2: he's really a comedic genius. And he in that was one of the craziest things about, you know, being creative partners with him on this is that he very much like shaped my comedic sensibility from a young age. Like I've been listening to Al as long as I can remember. And so it's just it's just such a bizarre thing, like getting to actually like sit down and write a script with him, because in a sense, I'm like, you taught me what was funny <laughs> in a, in a way, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's nuts, but he's definitely like co- comedic legend for sure.
1: Yeah. Comedic legend, very musically talented, like underrated in a lot of ways, like all around the board. Um, I think cause yeah, he just like lives the, in such a weird niche. Right.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, and then the, the non parody songs on his album, you know, he does on, on all of his albums, it's there, you know, there's five, five or six parodies, but the rest of the songs are like sort of these pastiche like genre to parodies. I mm-hmm. guess, um, you know, songs that are done in the style of whatever it is, the white stripes to the <laughs> B 52s, you know? And, um, you know, the songs are, are, they're all funny. Some of them are, some of them are maybe quirkier than they are like laugh out loud, hilarious or weird and dark. And, um, you know that's what uh uh i feel like that's the underappreciated thing in in al's catalog everyone knows the the ones that were on MTV but you know there's there's so many great songs living on those albums that um that you know i i hope that after this movie people you know start downloading weird al songs
1: a yankovic and- bump
2: Right? Yeah, yeah. 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 He's going to give himself the Yankovic bump. <laughs> uh, last
1: question for you, uh, Eric. And again, the movie is fantastic. Weird, the Al Yankovic story on Roku. Um, your favorite scene in the movie. I mean, this this is your first feature length baby, but I'm sure there's a particular scene that you're like, oh, we nailed this. This was so great.
2: Yeah, it's 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 the my bologna, it's the my bologna scene. It's him <laughs> writing my bologna. And um, it's this moment where he he. Uh, you know, is struck like it's a trope that's in so many biopics where like the artist just comes up with their hit song out of the blue. And it's like this crazy, inspiring moment. We took it a step further with like this big John Williams, like movie score. It's like, suddenly it sounds like Jurassic Park or Indiana Jones or something. And, um, uh, yeah, just like the angles, the you know uh, that that we shot everyone's performances, and that was our first day of shooting too, when we did that scene. And it's like been, yeah, it's I've always said it's it's uh, yeah my favorite my favorite moment in the movie.
1: Well, you know what? So many people are gonna love this movie. We are the Al Yankovic story. Eric, man, congratulations on on directing a phenomenal movie. I can't wait to see what
2: you do next. Thank you so much. Great talking to you.
1: And he joins me now to talk about the new book, With Great Power, How Spider-Man Conquered Hollywood During the Golden Age of Comic Book Blockbusters. You know him from a myriad of different places. The Real Blend Podcast is where I was first exposed to him. Sean O'Connell joins us
3: all the way from Charlotte, North Carolina. Ric Flair country. How you doing, Sean? (laughs) Woo! Yeah, I'm doing great, man. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, Look,
1: I'm so excited to talk to you. This this book um, is... uh, man, I can only imagine how much research and work went into it. And that's where I want to start. Okay. Let's start with, you did a book about the Snyder cut and Zack Snyder's justice league. Um, why was, first of all, let's talk about the first book. Okay. Mm -hmm. After you finished, I I wrote two books about films as well. uh, One about back to the future and one about the James Bond franchise. And after Mm -hmm. the first book, the back to the future book, um, there was a quote Daniel Craig had after he finished filming Spectre where he said uh, they asked him, Were you going to do another Bond? He said, I'd rather sl- uh, break this glass on the table, slit my wrist and never do another James Bond movie. Right. He ended up doing another James Bond after that. But that was the feeling I had after the first book of like, oh, my gosh, I never want to do that again. It was so much yeah. research. It was so much time in a room. And then I did it again. And I'm probably going to do it a third time. But what, what was yeah. your what was your uh, read on that after your first book? Did you have a similar feeling?
3: the exact same feeling. Um, I, I little, because I swore up and down for years that I would never write a book. Like everyone who hears that you're a writer, you know, they're like, oh, you eventually probably want to do a book. And I was like, no, I have no interest in doing that whatsoever. Because um, I could I couldn't think of a subject that I would want to spend that amount of time on. Like my advice to anybody having done this now is if you're going to do a book on something, you better love the topic because you're going to be immersed in it night and day you know it's it's never going to leave your subconscious essentially um but the thing about the snyder cut book as it was coming together is that in the middle of writing that book I, i was interested in that story before they announced that the movie was actually coming i just thought that this fan base gathering themselves together to fight for the you know the release of a movie that they believed existed, even though they were told it it didn't exist, was really fascinating. And I was fascinated by the fact that Zack Snyder was kind of egging them along. And then I learned about all the stuff that they did on behalf of um, raising funds for the Association for Suicide Prevention. Uh, And I just thought that whole story was great. But in the middle of writing that book, HBO max announced that the Snyder cut was going to be coming to their streaming service. So then it became a breaking news story, you know, like the, the story kept changing and evolving as I was racing towards my deadline. So I ended up with the best possible ending for that book, which is, Hey, this campaign worked, you know, and they have the movie to now celebrate. But like you said, I was like, I never want to do that again, but, and I'm sure that this is very much like you, when you're sitting there, you know, quiet with nothing to do. And you're a little bit antsy and you start to, you know, scratch your arm and you start to think like, what can I be like tinkering with? Let me just tinker with a couple of ideas. And, uh, and Spider-Man's always been my guy. Like that's my favorite character. I've loved the film franchise. And I started to think about all the different ways, the different obstacles that that film franchise and character has encountered over the years. Uh, even before the Raimi films, and sure. then the way that the Raimi, the Raimi trilogy ended and all the problems that Andrew Garfield had and the fact that he's now shared between studios, I just figured there were a lot of stories there to tell. So I started putting together the the template of what the table of contents might be. And then before I knew it, I was off and running.
1: Oh, man. Yeah, that, that is exactly how it does it. You know, you, you, you're right. You have to love the subject matter because let me ask you this, because I felt by the again, the end of both books, um, I didn't want to watch another Bond movie for about eight, 6 months. Like I needed to sure. take a like a big break. Did have you had to divest yourself a little bit from Spider-Man once you turned in the manuscript and now you hear you are talking about it so it probably gets those juices flowing again, but did you have to take a step away for a moment?
3: I not for very long, honestly, no. because I do I enjoy those movies more than anything. And really the when I'll put them on is the end of the night. I'm the only one still up and I'll throw on like a couple of scenes from one of the films. Um, I rarely sit down and watch them from start to finish. I don't think I feel the need to do that anymore. Um, I'm going to watch no way home again because I probably haven't watched it in a good eight months. Right. And I think that like, that's enough time has passed that now I legitimately want to sit down and watch it again from start to finish because I still, that's a, that's a movie that I can't believe exists. You know, like it's legitimately a movie that's pulled directly from my imagination. And so (laughs) That was coming out right at the time that I was trying to land the plane on this book. And I was thankful because it led me get some really great quotes from all of the people involved about bringing this, these three generations of Spider-Man together. And that really was the thesis of the book. It was like, if this is a character that's so popular that when you put three generations of them together, it's a billion dollar movie. I was like, yes, this is why Spider-Man is as popular as he is. And this is, this movie is proving my point. But then, yeah, I had to get away from that for a little bit. But now I'm looking forward to sitting down and like enjoying it as a fan again.
1: No Way Home is uh, just such a cinematic triumph in so many different ways. But it was a you had to see it opening weekend movie. Uh, Similar to um, the only other one I could think of in recent memory was The Force Awakens, where it was like you had to go opening weekend. um, And there was almost a pact between everybody online. It was like, we're not going to talk about it until the opening weekends over. And I remember being on on vacation and and telling my wife, hey, we gotta, we just gotta go see it though. Let's just find a movie theater that's playing it. Cause <laughs> I can't I can't miss this. And you're yeah. right. There was a there was an audible gasp when the um, you know Jacob Batalone and 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 Zendaya are in the living room and uh mm-hmm. you see the portal come up and, and Andrew Garfield walks through it. Uh, there was an audible gasp in the theater. A you as a lifelong Spider-Man fan must have shared in that in that audience
3: reaction. hundred percent. And that's, that was what was so thrilling is that it's been so long since I was part of, well, well I guess not so long, like Endgame, Avengers Endgame. Endgame had that. Endgame's another one, yeah. Yeah, where it had like the crowd was so into it, right? But like, if you remember leading up to No Way Home, like Andrew Garfield played the game about as well as anybody else, right? Yeah. So even though going into the screening of it I was like 99% convinced he was in it there was still that bit of just like I don't know maybe he's not kidding maybe he's really not in this. Yeah. So yeah when he showed up it was it was tremendous. But then even at that like even if I knew that he was going to be in it the curiosity of just like how are they going to involve him? How much are they really going to get to do? Like, I love the fact that they have a science scene together, you know, and they're able to trade stories about their backstories. I love the fact that they are all three of them legitimate parts of the final fight, you know, and yet Tom still got all of his stuff. It's still his movie, but those guys didn't get shortchanged. and They weren't just glorified cameos.
1: It, it, it was uh, Tom Holland's movie. Absolutely. This is where we got to see him actually grow into Peter Parker and 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 he had his own Although Uncle Ben was never really seen in his uh, series of films, the Aunt May moment uh, was obviously the, the the Uncle Ben moment that we saw from the Raimi films sure. um, or, or from the, the Webb films. But as much as it was Holland's film, it was a bit of a redemption for Andrew Garfield, right? The, the Amazing Spider-Man 2 was not critically commercially well-received by anybody. Audiences audience didn't like it. I mean, Jamie Foxx was playing a caricature of yeah. of, 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 a, of a nerd and a super villain. So I'm sure that that was, for for him, he felt whole in that movie because he had the moment where he got to save Zendaya and it, it was really
3: well done. Well, not only that, he got to hear fan reaction after the fact because the majority of the buzz following No Way Home was, oh man, we were wrong about Andrew Garfield. You know, like he was good and and he just got bad movies. And I think a lot, like, a lot of really diehard Spider-Man fans understood that. But outside of the realm, it was perceived as like, oh, Andrew Garfield kind of botched his two Spider-Man movies. And it's like, no, 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 he was actually terrific. He just had bad material kind of thing. And when you put him in a good movie, uh, his passion for the character is really going to shine through. So if he never does Spider-Man again, I'm glad he got that moment. You know, that was so important. He he deserved it so much more than Toby did, which is why there is a really funny interaction when Toby's like, you know, don't put yourself down. Why are you saying? How come you're saying you're not good enough? Sort of thing. Like that's so meta, and that's in there because of Andrew feeling that way about his his person. Like Toby ended on a bad movie. Like Spider Man Three is not a great movie. Sure, but he had a really good run, and and one and two are considered two of the best Spider Man movies of all time. So he didn't have to come back. It's I'm glad that he did, and it would have been weird if he didn't. But for Andrew to come back, you're right. It was total redemption tour, and I'm I'm thrilled for him that he got to do it.
1: I have so many questions really about the rights of Spider-Man and how we got to no way home, but let's, let's actually start a little bit earlier because there was a, a a screen on screen Spider-Man prior to the Sam Raimi universe. I mean, when did Spider-Man first, when did we first see him in cinema or on television
3: there? uh, Nicholas Hammond played Spider-Man in a a CBS uh, television program in the late 60s, early 70s. Wow. Um, and it was around the time of of Bill Bixby uh, playing uh, and Lou Fregno playing The Incredible Hulk. And uh, there was also a, a Thor cartoon. Marvel was, uh, after establishing themselves as a comic book company, was trying their best to bring over their characters into live action, but not quite understanding fully how to do it. Um, and, and they were watching the Adam West Batman show sure. and really thinking like, we can mimic that somehow. And the Hulk was successful. You know, that Bill Bixby, Lou Ferrigno show was had an impact on the culture. Yeah. But Nicholas Hammond's show did not. Um, and he he chalks it up. I interview him for the book and he chalks it up to um, scheduling. They never had a consistent date. They never really, like they would air like two episodes and then they'd be gone for a month. So nobody really knew when to see the movies or what to do with them. But But technically on this technicality, he qualifies as the first on-screen Spider-Man because what the network did was they took two um, one-hour episodes and packaged them together three different times to make feature films that they then showed overseas. They showed them in the UK and they showed them throughout Europe. Um, And so people who didn't get access to the television show saw those those as movies. And so he talks about the fact that when he goes to Comic-Cons all around the, the world still to this day, he gets approached by people who are bringing him posters and marquee standups from their first experience with Spider-Man in the movie theater. And it's, and it's him, it's, it's him as Nick, as a, as his Spider-Man. Now, have you, are do
1: these cuts of these, uh, you know, international films? do they exist somewhere online?
3: I mean, is there a, you know, a, you can watch them on YouTube. You you can can watch them on YouTube YouTube and watch them. And, and those, the Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man shows um, of course had a budget, you know, But they were because I also write about uh, the Japanese Spider-Man series, which was way more of like uh, inspired by the manga stories um, that were big at the time. And it wasn't Peter Parker and he wasn't a photographer. Um, It was a guy who was a, a, a stunt, a motorcycle stunt rider. And he fought, you know similar to what you'd see in the manga. He fought robots and dragons and weird Mm -hmm. stuff like that, but he had a really comic accurate Spider-Man suit. But when Nicholas Hammond tried to do it for CBS, they had a television budget and they never did any of the classic Spider-Man villains. He would always be like stopping people who were like shipping in uh, illegal, you know, uh, illegal products or some sort of gangsters. And Stan Lee, for that reason, never really liked the show because he thought that they were rejecting uh, Doctor Octopus or the lizard or something, but the show wanted to be more grounded and it didn't want to tackle those things. So um, when you watch them, if you check up on them on YouTube, it feels like an episode of like uh, you know Starskin Hutch, but sure. one of the guys happens to wear a Spider-Man
1: costume. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I would love to see those. It's just interesting that the, the journey that that brought Spider-Man um, to the big screen as we really were first properly introduced to him in, in the 2002 Sam Raimi movie uh, with Tobey yeah. Maguire. Um, if I'm correct, and you're the expert here, um, but I know a little bit about kind of how we got to that moment of Marvel was on financial struggles or it was having financial struggles on, on the verge mm-hmm. of, of bankruptcy. And, and in order to save themselves, they were shopping some of their characters and licensing. I believe they went to Sony and, and not only said you can have Spider-Man, but you can pretty much have everybody. I, except for maybe the X-Men and
3: Fantastic Four, I believe, for 20, 20 plus million dollars. Those two uh, properties were at Fox already because they'd already right. made a deal with Fox to to do X-Men and Fantastic Four. It was 25 million. Um, and John Kelly was the president of Sony at the time. And uh, when they brought that deal to him, he said, no, He's, he said, the other characters aren't worth a damn. The only <laughs> one I want is Spider-Man. I'll pay $10 million for him. Um, Avi Arad, who is the one who is negotiating all of this. Uh, Avi was the president of Marvel at that time, uh, had a toy background and legitimately only wanted to make the movies so they could serve as commercials for the, the toys that he had the license, the license sure. to make. Um, they shopped the deal around to the other studios really quickly to say like, hey, who wants the entire catalog? No one bit. So they went back to uh, Sony and said, "Okay, you can have Spider-Man, which explains why Sony has had Spider-Man this entire time, because they've held on to him. But shortly after that, this is around the time when Marvel had kind of helped to do uh, Blade over at New Line and they did uh, 20th Century Fox. They did the X-Men movies and they started to see how those were connecting. And that's that's essentially why the MCU starts with Iron Man is because he was the strongest character in their minds at the time. They would have loved to start with Spider-Man. They would have loved to have launched the MCU with Spider-Man if they had the rights to him. And this is a fun story too. You might know this as well too. They had boiled it down to, I believe, Iron Man, Captain America, and Black Panther, of which one they were going to start their MCU with. And they did a workshop with kids and they put toys in front of the kids and said essentially like, which one would you guys prefer to play with the most? and the majority of the kids selected Iron Man. And that's why they were like, all right, we're gonna make an Iron Man movie. They'll be the first one we do.
1: Oh my gosh, <laughs> We no, I did not know that. We It's yeah. interesting that the studio would pass on it. And I guess it was just due to the popularity maybe at the time, but the 2000 X-Men movie uh, was well received and did very well. And I think kind of goes under the radar a little bit of what it did to uh, launch comic book movies into this sure. new millennia of, of blockbusters. Um, I understand also why they said we want to make toys because when coming off the Joel Schumacher Batman's, which were just toyetic films, they were made yes. for marketing to, to children. Um, I, I understand that, but I don't know about you. I, I, I played this game on the super Nintendo called war of the Gems. Have you ever heard of this game before?
3: I have not, No. Okay. No, so it's I a
1: Marvel not. game called war of the okay. Gems, and you have five characters to choose from. It's a uh, captain America, Hulk Wolverine, Iron Man and Spider Man. And so to me, that was always that all those characters were on the same level for me. So maybe this was just a me thing. Because when I heard there was an Iron Man movie coming out, I'm like, let's go. We're finally getting Tony Stark on the cinematic universe. But I can't believe they got him for $10 million.
3: Spider Man, that is. I can't imagine being the guy who turned down that deal for the entire catalog. Like, I would assume that he wakes up nightly, no exaggeration. (laughs) Just screaming, you know, because it's it's legitimately the worst financial deal I've ever heard of in my entire life to say that those characters aren't worth anything. The only thing I can think of is that at the time, yes, like X-Men was starting to take off and they were figuring out Blade, but there was still a bumper crop of bad comic book movies. You know, you had uh, Pamela Anderson did Barb Wire and uh, Shaq was in um, Steel, Steel. you know. So there were enough test cases where the studios could be like, this genre is not a a slam dunk, you know? Like, we don't know if the audiences are really going to turn around for these characters. And do we want to invest in a Thor movie, you know, or a Captain America movie? And it really did take, you know, Kevin Feige. It took, and Feige was working on X-Men. He was assistant to the producer uh, and was this comic whiz kid and then he moved over and became a producer for Avi over on, on Spider-Man movies. And then he transitioned over to start helping out with Iron Man. And it really became his story of him being the guiding force to explain to them like, no, this we're going to do it the way the comics have done it. We're going to tell the stories accurately and have faith in our characters and our storytelling. And this is how we're going to get there. And so um, this is where we are now.
4: Wait,
1: I think he was he was right on that one, right on the money. Uh,
3: <laughs> yes, but but yeah. you know, I mean, yes,
1: of course. I'm sure the guy wakes up and, and has cold sweats and fever dreams about turning it down. But still, getting Spider Man for ten million dollars, they've well made that money back. <laughs> like because oh.
3: Spider Man two thousand two at the time was the hi- highest opening weekend in history, right? Yes. Fastest movie to a hundred million. They were at a hundred million before the first weekend was over. And they went into that Friday night anticipating like a $15 million opening. And they ended up doing 38. Uh, and they were stunned. You know, they, they didn't know because Tobey Maguire, you have to remember at that time was like the cider house rules kid, mm-hmm. you know, and he had done wonder boys. He had some heat on him, but he wasn't proven as like, I think Stan Lee even said, like, if you asked me who I would cast as Spider-Man, like Tobey Maguire would never, you know, uh, crossed my radar but amy pascal who was the executive at sony at the time she was like you have to be convincing as peter you know if you're going to be convincing as spider-man like anyone can be in the costume it doesn't matter if you see toby or not but he's got to be a convincing peter parker and toby was that he definitely was
1: so after the success of of the 2002 spider-man obviously we we launch into the Ramy verse which ends on like you said somewhat of a i wouldn't say a sour note but a down note um, with sure. Topher Grace's Venom and and all of these things, <laughs> <laughs> and then the, we, we talked about the Andrew Garfield Spider Man. The deal to bring him into the MCU, um, to mm-hmm. me, is is one of the great cinematic agreements of all time. To to sure. for two studios, I'll, I'll use this as an example. I don't know if you're if you're a, a boxing fan at all, but when when there was talk of Mayweather, Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor having a fight. Everyone was like, oh, it'll never happen. It'll never happen. There's too much business between it. And I would always say on the radio, I'm like, there's too much money to be made for them to not do it. And, you know, that fight, they both made hundreds of millions of dollars on it. And it was the same thing, I think, for Spider-Man to be in the MCU. It's just like, there's so much money to be
3: made. I'm sure they can figure it out. How did that deal, though, come about? Well, it's very similar to in sports, you know, in In the film industry, ego is enormous, you Mm -hmm. know, and it required Sony to essentially admit that what they were doing with Spider-Man wasn't working. You know, they they wanted to believe that they had enough in their power to jumpstart a universe uh, similar to what the MCU had, but really just based on Spider-Man's characters Um, and. We're watching DC try to do it with every new movie that they put out. You know, everything's trying to be connected to something else. And it's really hard to do. Um, and it's especially hard to do with one character. So the amazing Spider-Man movies that Andrew Garfield had had multiple problems <clears throat> in that they were instantly compared to Tobey Maguire's movies because they came out too soon afterwards. Right? Very quickly. Mm hmm. And so, no matter what Mark Webb tried to do, and he tried to really take it from a different angle and go more grounded and, and try to present, you know, a, a slightly cooler, uh, scruffier, you know, Peter Parker. And but he still hit the origin beats, he still had Uncle Ben, he still had the spider bite, he still had a little, you know, what they had going for them was the chemistry between Andrew and Emma, and it was fantastic. Then you get to two, and all of a sudden they try to kitchen sink it, you know, it's Oscorp. It's Norman Osborn. It's Harry Osborn. It's, uh, you know, the, the rhino special, at the
1: end. And... <laughs>
3: the rhino, exactly. The rhino at the end, uh, Electro. It's it's too yeah. much going on. And it's it, that movie couldn't sustain the weight of it. And so at any point over the course of that time, if those movies were successful, then maybe Spider-Man doesn't go to Marvel because then Sony can say like, no, what we're doing is working. You know, people enjoy this but they were critically panned and they were losing the fans. And Kevin Feige, of course, was in Amy Pascal's ear for years saying, let me work on it. Let me work on it. You know, let, let him come over here. Let us work on it. We'll just figure out the negotiation. We'll figure out the trade back and forth because that's what it came down to. Amy had to accept the fact that she was going to admit publicly that her attempts to keep Spider-Man going at Sony weren't necessarily working. And she had to move him over to, to, to Marvel. But then they had to figure out their distribution deal. Like, yes, Marvel is working on it creatively and producing it, but it's being distributed by Sony, and all those profits are going to Sony. Um, no Way Home was a billion-dollar movie, but not for Marvel. It was a billion-dollar movie for Sony. Um, but they just benefit because they have they can use Doctor Strange. You know, they can they get insight from from Feige. But sooner or later, that deal is going to end. You know, sooner or later, they and it almost did. It almost did before No Way Home. Right uh, after Far From Home. <clears throat> They wanted to renegotiate and Disney wanted more. You know, there's a split with merchandise and there's a split with how much they get from the tickets and Disney wanted more. I think they get 5% right now of the tickets sold and 95% goes to Sony and Disney wanted 50% because they were like, look, look, Kevin Feige's really busy. He's torn in a million different directions. He's doing Disney Plus shows now. Uh, We have a a hundred other movies coming. He doesn't have the time to work on Spider-Man. So we want 50%. And Sony was like, no, no, that's okay. We'll just bring Spider-Man back. Ugh. And, the, you know, who was going to blink first? And it was apparently Kevin who stepped in and was like, look, we still want to use Spider-Man. We still have big plans for him. Uh, let's keep the deal where it is. Uh, and they're really negotiating it piece by piece. I'm not even quite sure what what it is going forward. I think Tom Holland signed on for one more. And I think that he has a, a bid in a contract to appear to appear in another Marvel project, whether it be a television show or a movie. But you know, you would think that they'd be hooking him up for a trilogy right now to keep him busy and nothing's been confirmed. So we're waiting to see. That's a little puzzling right there. I mean, especially a
1: follow-up to No Way Home would, would do, I'm sure big business at the box office uh, considerably. Um, I guess to me, when you look at the three iterations of Spider-Man that we've had, the big cinematic ones, I've actually, as much as I love the, the Tobey Maguire, especially the first one, I know the second one is, is, is critically acclaimed. I'm not mm-hmm. as big of a fan of the second one as probably most people are. I feel like it gets mm-hmm. a little bit too zany and cartoony and a little bit too ramy in certain respects. Um, but, <laughs> yes. but I think the, third, the, the uh, Tom Holland trilogy that we've had thus far, in my opinion, is the superior of all the iterations that we've gotten. Mm-hmm. I, am I off base with that?
3: No, I mean that's your opinion, of course. And, and well, I'm asking if I've, it's your opinion. <laughs> I have realized that the easiest way to start a flame war is to give an <laughs> opinion picking, on which Spider-Man yeah. you prefer. But here's what I will say: this is this is my takeaway. Um, I think that that Andrew uh, is the best Peter Parker that we've seen, and I hmm. think that Tom is the best Spider-Man. Um, I really connect with. I think Andrew is the better actor of the three. Sure, and I really connect with. Um, the pain uh, and the, the emotional struggle that he brings to Peter Parker. Um, I buy into the fact that that poor kid is wearing the weight of the world on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you put him in, in better films with a little bit stronger material, he's going to sell it Tom. And I don't know if it's because he's collaborating with Marvel studios officially, and it's not a Sony thing, but his live action Spider-Man is to me directly lifted off the page. You know, like I see panels from the comics coming to life in those movies. And he has so many great set pieces over the course of those movies. You know, like the fight on the on the plane against the vulture is outstanding. Um, His his quips are funnier. You know, he's the funniest of the of the three, essentially. Uh, Toby gets credit. Toby's Spider-Man feels like right out of the 1960s. It's Stanley. It's Steve Ditko. It's as close to like the origin as you're going to get. Um, but as it evolved, it became to me a little corny, you know, that, that humor. Rainey's a little bit dated. He loves mm-hmm. that stuff. Um, and it works for most of the things. Um, but Tom is the perfect blend of like modern, uh, fun, like funny and, and, and moves in a way, you know, like the Staten Island Ferry set piece to me is wow, so yeah. spectacular to watch. Um, Far From Home has some really great ones too. The 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 London Bridge fight sequence is incredible. And uh, you know, and I, I think go Jake, back and,
1: I think Jake gyllenhaal is really good in that movie. I know terrific. some people do, I I think that his Mysterio, his take on
3: it, his read on it, the way he plays it is really, really good. And how great is the the illusion sequence in the middle where he's messing with him in Berlin. Like it's Ugh. it's terrific. It's terrific. Yeah. So, yes, I I do think that Tom is the best Spider-Man, but I give it I do I give Andrew the edge on Peter. And Marissa Tomei's Aunt May. Like when I saw that, I was all the way
1: in. I thought this is the greatest casting (laughs) of these movies is Marissa Tomei. And you had the the flirty banter with her and Robert Downey Jr. um, So I'll share
3: something interesting with you that I learned from from multiple interviews that I did for the book. The MCU uh, creative team never thought about Uncle Ben. Never. They never thought about him. One time I asked Tom Holland directly on the Homecoming, Spider-Man Homecoming press junket, I said, is your Peter Parker responsible for Uncle Ben's death? And he goes, I don't know. And I said, well, what do you mean you don't know? And he goes, no one's ever talked to me about that. So I was like, all right, well, that's interesting. Um, And then I spoke to uh, the writers of Homecoming and I said, did you guys ever have any conversations about like what happened with Peter's uh, Uncle Ben? And they said, no, we actually never did. They said, we assumed that it was like the spider bite, you know, and that maybe he was responsible for it, but we never had that conversation. And they, because they really just said, like, the other movies did it already, so we're not going to touch it. So they never thought about it. So no, I don't know if he even has an Uncle Ben. <laughs> I'm not going to. I think he does. Yeah. Because he has the on the suitcase, it, it has Ben Parker's. Uh, sure. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And Aunt May okay. has talked about Uncle Ben before, but I don't know. And, and no one uh, associated with the franchise who I spoke to has been able to confirm one way or the other if, if Tom Holland's Peter is responsible for uncle Ben's death,
1: that is wild. And you know what, again, you just assume it going in because sure. you've seen the, 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 previous iterations. You're just, oh, okay, this, we know what happened to uncle Ben. This is Aunt may we're already finding him uh, as, as the Spider-Man really interesting stuff, man. I have to ask you this. Um, this isn't Spider-Man related, but this would be my final question because okay. you are a movie aficionado. You've, you've, I listen to the real blend all the time. You sit and talk to the greats like Kevin Smith, Quentin Tarantino, all these guys, right? You know, movies. I make this argument to every movie person I know that, it back to I the, can't wait. that the Back to the Future trilogy is yes. the greatest pure trilogy in yeah. cinema history. Meaning there's been no other entries into the franchise. No film uh, takes a, a, a big step down in quality. Um, right. And and each of them are their own really perfect. You can watch them kind of uh, self-contained, or watch them yep. all together, and you don't leave unsatisfied in any way. I know some people might say, "Well, there's Indiana Jones." Well, no, we have Crystal Skull. Okay, and let's be honest, Temple of Doom. We're hey. about to have a fifth one. Not the best, and we're about to have a fifth one. Yeah, Godfather trilogy,
3: big big step down for part three. Step down. Correct, correct. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong at all. Um, and I would I would say I'm trying to think of one, one other and I can't. Um I've had this argument on the Real Blend podcast. I think that the Back to the Future trilogy is stronger than the OG Star Wars trilogy. Yes. Um it's it's just a it's a more entertaining story. Uh and there is like I don't understand what the heat that, that part three gets.
1: My favorite like three of the is, trilogy.
3: Three is genius. Yeah. and two is my favorite because I think Zemeckis is out of his mind for when going he puts into party first- back into the dance. Yeah, it's that's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and he pulls it off, you know, like it Beautiful. should that should fall on its face a million times, but it's fantastic. Um, and then the Wild West tribute is just is outstanding. No, I'm gonna agree with you. I, I cannot think of another pure trilogy uh that is anywhere near as good as Back to Future trilogy. Oh my no. gosh. I think it's- to To quote the great movie, Step Brothers, I think we just became best friends. I think it just
1: happened. But but the book is called With Great Power, How Spider-Man Conquered Hollywood During the Golden Age of Comic Book Blockbusters. It's out on hardcover November 1st. That's the day after Halloween. Sean O'Connell joins us uh, right now. Man, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to us about this
3: great book. This was a blast. I really appreciate you having me on, Brad. Take care.
0: Every person in this room has the perfect motive. Stand back! For murder. What do you mean? Murder. But only one of these suspects is the murderer. Is it the timid Mr. Green? Why are you screaming? Because I'm frightened! I'm oh, Screaming! Or the militant Colonel Mustard? If oh. I was the killer, I would kill you next. Huh? Except him. Death. Mrs. White, who helped her husband on his way. Well, it's a matter of life after death. Now that he's dead, I have a life. Miss Scarlett, ah. who's helped many men along the way. Practice makes perfect. Huh. Professor Plum, who's looking for a way. I'm lucky. I'm lucky. Mrs. Peacock. I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Or did the butler do it? Now. Nah. No. Paramount Pictures invite you to an evening of mystery, murder. This is getting quite serious and madness. In the movie that makes a scene of the crime, dead! clue. It's not just a game anymore. And we're here to talk about it. We're
1: excited. My name is Brad Gilmore. I'm joined by the director of Clue of, of Who Done It, the Clue documentary, Jeff Smith. Hello. Hey Jeff, how are you, man?
4: Doing well. We just watched the first 60 seconds of Clue. <laughs> and
1: it's inthro- so you So know much what? happened. It's an enthralling 60 seconds, though, because within that 60 seconds, so much happened. Okay? We we know. If you're, watch- if you're listening or watching this for the first time, of course, we're going to break down Clue minute by minute. So there's going to be 97 episodes of this thing, and we're starting with minute one, which is <laughs> the obvious place to start. It begins with the Paramount logo, and it ends with the title for Leslie Ann Warren. Um, right. where, where, where do we start here? Because I guess this is my question for you, because you are the Clue historian now. You're like, you're like <laughs> yeah, the yeah, guy. Yeah. Like, if they yeah. ever do... Any kind of like interviews, you know how there's always the cast and then there's the one expert who comes Say the, and talks about the, the story
4: at the bottom of the screen. That's you. Oh, I would love that. That'd be like uh, back in the day on bh uh, one Best Week Ever or, uh, you know, I love the 80s. Oh, yeah. You're the guy. You bring that back. I'm the guy. Yeah, OK, I'll be that guy. You're I that guy. guy. You are that guy.
1: And um, yeah. so <laughs> you being the expert, this, might, this is always the biggest question. Yeah. OK. Parker Brothers. How does it start? I guess how does it start? Because when you think about all the board games the, that Parker Brothers has, which are dozens of different games, Clue, I guess it stands out as like a top one. But to me, like you'd go Monopoly. Like let's make a we Monopoly did. movie.
4: Oh, yeah, yeah. Which eventually they did. But I don't think at the time Parker Brothers was thinking, you know, Monopoly and, and Clue were going to be movies. It was actually uh, the producer, Deborah Hill, who is known for working with John Carpenter back in the day, you know, Halloween and The Fog and Salt on Priest 13. She was the one, the story goes, that she grew up playing Clue and she was a fan of Clue because it was a game you had to be smart to play. And I don't know if you've played clue anytime recently, but it's hard. Yeah. I did not really play clue a lot growing up because you need to have at least three players. And I did not have that many friends. (laughs) So only recently did I find uh, uh, in laws that like board games. And so I brought over clue and I found I'm, I'm a terrible clue player because I um, get impatient. So I, and also like to lie and bluff um which is a big part of the game as well it's much more it's different than shoots and ladders where you just go blip 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 and that's the end of the game but uh, Deborah Hill was a big fan and she was the one that went to uh, England where the game actually started different company i wish i wrote things down before we started this because it wasn't parker brothers parker brothers bought it from another company because it was in- called cluedo at first right cluedo and it's from a company that starts with a w and that's all i remember and it was made during the war when everyone was kind of stuck indoors, playing. Waddingtons. There you go. Waddingtons. That's yeah. right. That's right. So uh, that's where it started, and she basically got the rights for free. Uh, they didn't charge her anything, and I think they had some rules. But if you watch the movie Clue, they. I don't think a big company that did a board game that kids play would be so loose with some of the innuendo and uh, some of the more adult themes that happen in this little PG, I mean, 1985 era PG, which is different than, I mean, there aren't really any PG movies anymore, but uh, I mean, Pixar is now PG, Yeah, but back in 85 or even earlier, that was temple of doom and poltergeist and even airplane uh, were all PG um, but I, they were a little bit loose with the the content. Where I mean, Professor Plum is not an endearing character at all. Um, but she was the one that decided that was going to be a movie, and then she put it all together and wanted to hire uh, John Landis, which we can get to later. But originally, he was going to be one of the director of a Clue movie, and he came up with the story. It, it is. You're right about it being fast and loose with
1: with some of the language and the innuendo, and and we'll get we'll get to that as we. It was
4: worse. in The original script. There were f bombs even in the original. Uh, I, I'm glad clues. they took those out. That was a great call.
0: Yeah.
4: Right. Yeah. It would it would have been weird if it were uh, an R rated clue. I, yeah, because it wasn't. It did seem like it was all that violent, although. Uh, I only recently learned that one of the original Indians, one of the characters actually was shot that they cut out, um, that they, which I'm glad they cut out because that would have been pretty dark if all of a sudden one of these characters you were following suddenly got shot at the end. Um, Not like the way Wadsworth does, where he just kind of rolls down the the wall, but somebody like got shot. Um, But there was like, I guess originally when Wadsworth accidentally turns on the shower he uh, originally, you know, turns it on, but then he followed that with, I'm in the effing shower, and that was the, like, line. Uh, yeah, so, we, we could do without it. Yeah. We, we, we could, could do, do without it. it. Easy uh, clear. Uh, the cast, you know, we've t- we've
1: talked about before. Um, you and I had, have a great interview that we'll put on this on this feed um, where we talk kind of in depth about the cast, and you do such a great job, by the way, in the Clue doc um, about Kind of giving the backstory. I've seen it. Not I've seen a lot it. of
4: people have. Yes. Let's not uh, bury that lead. Do you know how I excited I, I was like to get that link? Seven people have seen it in its entirety. Jonathan Lynn, the director of Clue, is one of them. Uh, I'm one of them. My fiance is one of them. My parents are executive producers, so I kind of had to show them. Yeah. Uh, that's five. Me is that. six. But, uh, so. you're, you're definitely, there's there's less than 10. I will say that. And you're one of them. So. Well, I appreciate
1: that, you know, and, yeah. and, and and I remember watching it. And and here's the thing. This is another one of those movies that clue the movie, something that I've loved my whole life, but never done the deep dive into, like I did maybe for Back to the Future films or for the Bond books when I, when I wrote that one. This one, I loved how you laid out the cast. And I just want to highlight a couple of the people because- um, you got to talk to some of the cast, which I think is so cool. Yeah. Uh, we look at this in alphabetical order. Eileen Brennan wasn't obviously couldn't, couldn't talk to her, um, but yes, yes. yeah, she she's since passed, but Colleen camp, who I think is probably the object of every young man's desire when they, when they first see clue the movie. Is that true for you?
4: She was very important for a lot of young men in the uh, mid eighties. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, How was she, though? Just how was she as a... She was hilarious. I didn't know what to expect from Colleen Camp. And she... um, We met in her office. She's a producer now. I think the only movie that I've seen that she's produced is there's a Keanu Reeves kind of weird horror movie about two women. One of them is the new Marilyn Monroe called Knock Knock, uh, where these two women show up at this married man's door and then seduce (laughs) him into this weird... Bedroom situation, and uh, that's the, and then his life falls apart from it. That's the story. <laughs> but calling Camp, for whatever reason, is a producer on that, and uh, I also knew her because I'm a big fan of the Police Academy movies. That's like my guilty guilt pleasure, and she's in two and four Citizens on Patrol. Um, so I was excited to meet her, but she was just. You know, like kind of all over the place. She had her two assistants there, and uh, the assistants was uh, my favorite thing about. There's it. a part of the documentary where she's convinced that she's been in more than two movies with Michael McKean. Uh, she's been in the movie, obviously Clue, and Daryl, which is a very underrated uh, sci-fi movie that they did together right before Clue. But she's convinced they've done like four or five, and in the documentary, has her uh, assistant go through IMDb. <laughs> And go through his entire uh, filmography, and um, no, nope, it's only two. But <laughs> but there was a part we cut out where she ordered lunch, uh, so maybe that'll be a, a bonus feature at some point where uh, she orders lunch on on during the interview and even makes comment. I love this is being captured. Um, she got jasmine rice. I do remember that. Um, no, she was very helpful, and she was. There were a few people that were that attempted to, uh, you might be one of them to get, uh, Christopher Lloyd in front of the camera, uh, which never did happen. Although thanks to your help, I at least got an answer back. Uh, it was a no, but (laughs) we tried. No, that's okay. I was happy with that because forever it was just kind of, you know, in Christopher Lloyd land, um, and he's in, there's a, a clip in the documentary of him at a convention. And that's probably all he would have said if we sat down about Clue. Because I think a lot of people that did Clue, their memories are, uh, they did it and then they moved on. I'm sure he remembers a lot more about Back to the Future or Roger Rabbit or Star Trek than Clue. And probably less of Walk Like a Man, which he was in with Colin Camp, uh, which is a fine, fine film. I've never seen that. I don't even think I've ever heard of it. With It stars Howie Mandel. Oh. Who plays a uh, uh, Christopher Lloyd's brother who was raised by wolves? And then they find him because he's going to get the inheritance of their dead father. And Christopher Lloyd is a bad guy in the movie. You know what? Camp Under Underrated bad guy. Good bad guy. Well, Judge right. Doom. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Great. But and then Colin Camp is his uh, constantly intoxicated wife in Walk Like a Man. Well, Originally called Bobo the Dog Boy. Look it up, everybody. <laughs>
1: Okay, I don't know how you know that. Normally, I'm coming with the crazy facts. HBO.
4: It was on HBO a uh, lot. Oh man, walk. Yeah. What is it called? Walk like a man. Walk like a man, and the song, you know, walk like a man, is heavily featured in the uh, in there. So add that to for all you Christopher Lloyd fans, if you want to watch him play a jerk with Colin Camp, uh, that's it. That's it. Anyway,
2: that's it. Well, uh, so, he, yeah.
4: Here's what I was surprised at um
1: from your documentary. And then when we see some of these names, and we've talked about Michael McKeon and 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 obviously we're gonna spend a lot of time over this podcast talking about Tim Curry. Um so we'll we'll save some Tim Curry for when we get there. But people like Madeline Kahn or Leslie Ann Warren, I didn't really realize the pedigree of actor that they were. These these are Academy Award nominated actresses.
0: Yeah.
4: Three of them. Uh, Eileen Brennan. And Eileen Brennan, yeah. Yeah. I um, didn't know who, before I saw Clue as a kid, I didn't know who Eileen Brennan was. I didn't know who Leslie Ann Warren was. I didn't know who Martin Mull was, although I probably had seen Mr. Mom, and he plays a mm-hmm. jerk in that. Um, I knew Michael McKeon because of Laverne and Shirley. I think, I don't know if I'd even seen any Mel Brooks movies. I'd seen the Muppet movie. I grew up with the Muppet movie. So I knew Madeline, Madeline Kahn was in the Muppet movie because she asked Kermit to buy her a drink. And then Telly Savala shows up. And then Carol Kane shows up. Um, So I knew from that. And then uh, who else? Christopher Lloyd, I think I'd seen Back to the Future already, but I don't think I made that connection. And actually a lot of people now, I just recently put up a, a TikTok page for the documentary, which I had never done before. And a lot of people all of a sudden, I totally underestimated TikTok. Holy moly, there's a lot of people out there. And a lot of them are younger, so they're like, "I didn't know Doc Brown was in Clue, but somehow they had seen Clue, so their parents probably showed it to them." But he certainly doesn't look like he does. And in- no, I mean they're very different He's looking. Kind of over your shoulder, he kind of looks like that, but uh, more so than more so than the the Einstein. Yeah, 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 totally.
1: Yeah. The, yeah, totally. Yeah, I didn't, but I didn't realize the, the caliber of actresses that were in Clue and Leslie and Warren. I had seen, I knew her before, and I. I'm trying to remember
4: what I saw her in. I can't. I mean, Victor Victoria is not something for the young. It's pretty, it's pretty adult. Um, I'm looking the only at her IMDb. I have really no idea what I saw her in. The only other thing I had seen her in and I recognized her from Clue was um, when I was in high school, I was a big Aerosmith fan. Mm. And she plays the mom in the video for Janie's Got a Gun, which was directed by David Fincher. And she just has like three or four shots where she's just kind of standing off to the side going, you know, like reacting to all these terrible things that are happening. But when I interviewed Leslie and Warren, I said, you were in he has got a gun. She goes, Oh, Aero Smith. You were so nice. And I don't even think they're in scenes together, but um, that those are the two things. And she was also on the Muppet show. So maybe I'd seen that. Maybe it's the Muppet uh, show. I'm, I'm, right I'm, now. I, I'm, back to Muppets. I'm a I don't little know, in the documentary. There's a lot of shots of Muppets. There are a few <laughs> documentary to, Muppets, but uh, I, I'm a fan.
1: I'm looking at her page right now, her uh, Wikipedia okay. And I just discovered something I did not know about her. She was married to John uh, Peters.
4: Oh, yeah, John Peters. Uh, John Peters,
1: for those who don't know, is kind of a legendary figure in Hollywood for a few reasons, but he was just played by Bradley Cooper in, in Licorice Pizza. He yeah. is a uh, hairdresser who became a film producer. He produced. Married Barbara, like,
4: was he married to Barbara Streisand he, or just. Get this. Barbara?
1: Get this. Yeah, he, he was with Barbara Streisand for a decade. From 73 to 82, he marries some woman named Henrietta. Uh, Well, that was before her. Okay, so that was before Streisand. But before Streisand, he was also married to Leslie Ann Warren. Yeah, I think they have a kid. I think they do. Now that I'm reading this, so Leslie Ann Warren, Barbara Streisand, in his most recent marriage, was to Pamela Anderson.
4: (laughs) Oh, I didn't know that. I did not know that either. I know that i know john peters from if anybody's a fan of uh the evening with kevin smith documentaries <laughs> john peters is the one famously that wanted to put the giant spider in the superman movie and superman like, lives and the screen and he would lay back on the couch and because he wanted to see the movie like this through his mind's eye and then he produced uh wild wild west where we got the giant spider that's well, funny. you know, speaking of great documentaries, there's a great documentary
1: called "The Death of Superman Lives."
4: Very good, I, and that's I admire that documentary because I can't believe like Tim Burton jumped on. Oh yeah, like, John Peters, you know Kevin yeah, Smith. Yeah, they, they all, were all there. In it. That was like that's up there, like in the uh, uh, heart of darkness, apocalypse now, uh, documentary territory, or even the um, the Fantastic Four. Um, Roger Corman. Roger uh, documentary. Corman yeah a, excellent. As well, yeah, yeah. at um, everybody else's documentaries.
1: Might there's, as well. The late great, like, the, the late great John Schnepp was the director of that one. I, I never got to meet John, but we were in the same room at one point. I was going to go over and talk to him about the movie, but um,
4: you know, he has since passed. Not a Fantastic corner. No, no, of the uh, Death or, of Superman or, uh, Lives. Death of Superman. Superman. Oh yeah, that was amazing. I was shocked by the access that, uh, and just the honesty of of like A-listers because usually. They don't talk about projects that fell apart, but very honest in that one.
1: Yeah, very crazy. Uh, and um, I'm tra- I'm looking at all the movies that John Peters has uh, produced. He's produced quite a few.
4: Batman. A few films. I mean, uh, Tim Burton Batman is is up there, and that's wh- one of the things that Kevin Smith describes about John Peters' house. He it looks like Wayne Manor in the Tim Burton Batman, where you go up the big driveway and it's you know beyond <laughs> the gate and. Kooky dude, I think that's what he called him. A kooky dude. Well, he seems like a, But listen
1: to this, Caddyshack. He did Caddyshack. Yeah. Wow.
4: Great he, tan, too. Great tan and great hair. I mean, that's for any time I've seen him in anything. He looks well put together. What else? He's You're listed.
1: Excited. He's listed as an executive
4: producer of Clue. Clue. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, if you look at the credits that we just watched, it does say Peters. Um, what that means, I do not know. But uh did I miss John Peter's name in these credits? Paramount he presents. He one of the executive producers? Oh
1: yeah, a Goober Peters production.
4: As if Peter Goober was the one that like really was involved. But you know how some like executive producers are like, "Oh, I I was on that." Okay. I guess that's weird too that because was, he was divorced from Leslie Ann Warren. I think they're still friendly though. Okay, good. Yeah, I know. Good for them. Good for him, man. <laughs> yeah, good for him and Leslie and Warren. I, I wish them the best.
1: What a, what a uh, you know, I mean, that's quite the cast of characters, to be married to Leslie and Warren, be with Barbara Streisand and Pamela Anderson in your lifetime. That's a pretty, that's a pretty interesting mix of individuals. Yeah, he did all right. I gotta say, he's betting a thousand. He's betting a thousand, <laughs> sure. John Peters,
4: Congratulations to him. Um, yeah, and he had good hair, so he's like, you know. Phenomenal head of hair. The, the Lord nodded. Kindly to John Peter, <laughs> and he was a hairstylist that became a, a Hollywood A-lister. So he may have sold his soul. He may have done something. Don't know. Like don't get back to Ouija, uh, he may have sold his soul to the devil. Um, but that'll be on another episode, ladies and gentlemen. Did John Peter sell his soul to the devil? We'll figure that out as we go forward with this podcast. <laughs> um, I think that
1: that might be all for this minute. I think hey, I think we've covered more. a lot in the minute. I'm trying to see
4: if there's anything that we may have missed. From the, re- from the credits, from the credits, we didn't see anything. I mean, all we saw was clouds, the font, which is great. Font uh, is great. I like that the, the clue title is in a box, so it's kind of like the card. The card. Mm-hmm. Uh, the clouds. I like the uh, the. It's not on the soundtrack uh, that's been released, but the I always liked the very low, like that little note that happens over the Paramount logo which I totally stole in the last trailer I did for the documentary. It pops up and it's underneath the, the logo for my production company. And I thought um, some nerd is gonna catch it. This is the opening, just one no- I don't even know what note it is. It's probably a, hmm, I don't know what note it is, but- It's a C it's just, sharp. For sure. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm so full of it. Uh, but uh, and then it goes into the John Morris score, which is amazing. And I do have things I could talk about with the John Morris score. Well, but let's
1: we'll get- let's get to that in the next minute. We'll see you. That's Jeff Smith. I'm Brad Gilmore again. Uh, Cluedoc.com. Yeah. Cluedoc.com. So go check out the the documentary, and uh, we're going to talk more Clue by the minute on the next episode. By the minute.